the secret of interpreting or solving the code of Egyptian dreams seems to be turning all numbers into units of time, a static and discrete multiplicity into a measured period of change. On the surface, the Egyptian dreams hide the passage of time and the fact of change. But Joseph puts time and change back into the picture. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 13, Groundhog Day in Egypt. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1993, filmmaker Harold Ramis gave us a seemingly simple comedy about a man for whom time had ceased to move forward. The movie known as Groundhog Day took on cult status, beloved by clergymen and philosophers, thinkers, and theologians. Writer Jonah Goldberg informs us that, quote, when the Museum of Modern Art in New York debuted a film series on The Hidden God, Film, and Faith two years ago, it opened with Groundhog Day. The rest of the films were drawn from the ranks of turgid and bleak intellectual cinema, including standards from Ingmar Bergman and Roberto Rossellini. According to the New York Times, Goldberg continues, curators of the series were stunned to discover that so many of the 35 leading literary and religious scholars who had been polled to pick the series' entries had chosen Groundhog Day, that a spat had broken out among the scholars over who would get to write about the film for the catalog, end quote. As for us, Groundhog Day will hopefully give us new insight into the tale of the stunning rise of Joseph from Hebrew prisoner to vizier of all Egypt and savior of civilization from certain starvation. Literally sold down the river by his brothers, we experience Joseph as a man who makes lemonade out of every lemon. Bought from the slave dealers by Potiphar, a member of Pharaoh's court, Joseph excels in the Egyptian household but captures the eye of his master's wife. Genesis 39, 7. And it came to pass on a certain day when he went into the house to do his work, and there was none of the men of the house there within, that she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled. We must note the difference here between Joseph and a brother that will continue to occupy our attention. Whereas Judah takes up with a disguised woman on the side of the road, Joseph resists all temptation. Judah personifies he who falters and, as we shall see, ultimately overcomes. Joseph, in contrast, is one who naturally embraces the right and the good. Judah will be the paradigmatic penitent, Joseph an embodiment of astonishing righteousness, not only overcoming the advances of Potiphar's wife, but ultimately also forgiving his brother's trespasses against him. But for now, Potiphar's wife, scorned, claims that Joseph was the one who had made the advances and choosing the moral path lands Joseph in prison. Yet there too he flourishes, finding favor with his overseer and striking up a friendship with two of his fellow prisoners, other members of Pharaoh's court, whose own misdeeds have apparently aroused the ire of the monarch that they served. The Sarha Mashkim and the Sarha Ophim, literally the minister of drinks and the minister of the bakers. We must not imagine these men in our minds merely as a bartender and a pastry chef. These were overseers of drinks and bread for the pharaoh. And, as we shall see in our later discussions in Exodus, these foodstuffs were central to the Egyptian economy and way of life. As pharaoh's birthday celebration approaches, Joseph suddenly makes manifest a new talent. He not only has dreams, but is able to interpret those of others. Chapter 4, verse 9. And the minister of drinks told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, behold, a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches, and as it was budding, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters thereof 
brought forth ripe grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. And I gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said unto him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within yet three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head and restore thee unto thine office. When the minister of Baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said unto Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, three baskets of white bread were on my head. And in the uppermost basket there was of all manner of baked food for Pharaoh. And the birds did eat them out of the basket upon my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation thereof. The three baskets are three days. Within yet three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head from off thee, and shall hang thee on a tree. And the birds shall eat thy flesh from off thee. Joseph's predictions come true. The minister of the bakers is executed, whereas the other Egyptian is restored to his position. And then, despite Joseph's pleas, he immediately forgets the man whose prediction had come true. Note what these two dreams have in common. In both, the images represent units of time, that is, the branches or baskets embody days. And yet, unlike Joseph, the dreamers seem utterly incapable of making heads or tails of what they have seen. Only the Hebrew is able to explain how, with the passage of time, these men's lives will fundamentally change, for good or for ill. This is now a hint to us that the Egyptian relationship with time lies at the heart of the story. And so we return to the great film About Time. Groundhog Day stars the actor Bill Murray as Phil Connors, a cynical and selfish weatherman who travels to the town of Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, in order to do a puff piece on the emergence of the groundhog on Groundhog Day in that locale. Phil looks down upon all those in the town as simpletons. After treating everyone rudely, he goes to sleep in his motel, wakes up the next day, only to experience Groundhog Day once again. He keeps waking up morning after morning in Puxatawney, and it's always February 2nd, with the radio always blaring, it's Groundhog Day. At first, Murray's character embraces his time stasis, realizing that he can do whatever he wants without consequences, as he will just wake up at the beginning of that same day. But he eventually grows frustrated and attempts to commit suicide. But he still continues to wake up in his bed on February 2nd. Finally, having come to know in intricate detail everything that happens in that town on that day, he focuses on using every minute toward a good purpose. He saves the lives of those who died on that day, fixes the flat tires of those in need, enjoys art, and learns to love a woman, Rita, played by Andy McDowell, who originally was spiritually far out of his league, but whose own love he ultimately earns. Eventually, having spent every instant of February 2nd in a proper way, having lived a perfect day, he actually wakes up the next morning and it is February 3rd. Tomorrow finally comes. In other words, only after Phil has grown to appreciate the preciousness of time is he allowed to truly experience time. Now, for those of you who have not yet seen this film, I apologize for completely ruining it for you. But let us now ask ourselves, is this only a fable? A cinematic metaphor? Perhaps the film also, albeit unintentionally, embodies the ethos of a society that once long ago sought to stop time itself. For at the heart of ancient Egypt was the attempt to stop time. We see this first and foremost in mummification, in which every attempt is made to deny decay, to allow the body, buried with all its items, to live on in the next world, in the belief that you really can take it all with you. And indeed, a hint to this cultural obsession with preventing change 
can be found in one affectation pertaining to the Egyptian court. Let us continue the Joseph tale. Pharaoh himself has a dream. Chapter 41. And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed, and behold, he stood by the river. And behold, there came out of the river seven cows, well-favored and fat-fleshed, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ill-favored and lean-fleshed, and stood by the other cows upon the bank of the river. And the ill-favored and lean-fleshed cows did eat up the well-favored and fat ones. Pharaoh then has another dream, in which similarly seven fat ears of grain are swallowed up by seven lean, blasted ones. None in his court can interpret these visions. Joseph's former friend from prison informs the Pharaoh about a man who has a gift for interpretation. Genesis 41.14 Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily from the dungeon, and he shaved and changed his clothes and came unto Pharaoh. This is the first time that shaving appears in the Bible. It appears that one could only appear in high society in Egypt in a barefaced state. Leon Cass notes that the practice of shaving in the ancient world was to a great extent unique to Egypt. And other scholars who have written on this passage, such as the archaeologist Lisbeth Fried, concur. Fried tells us that, quote, most people in ancient Mesopotamia did not shave. A relief from the audience hall of Sancherov's palace in Nineveh shows in exquisite detail the fall of the Judean city of Lachish to the Assyrian armies in 701 BCE. It depicts the Assyrian king, whose head is unfortunately defaced, though the beard is still visible, seated on his throne receiving his chief minister, perhaps the tartan mentioned in 2 Kings 18.17, and other officers from his army. Behind them, Jews from Lachish are shown bowing its submission. The Jews and Assyrians are in full beard. End quote. Fried further adds that, at least from the time of the old kingdom in Egypt, quote, the custom among men was to shave beard and mustache and wear a false goatee on special occasions. Foreigners, she further writes, can be distinguished from native Egyptians in many Egyptian tomb paintings by the presence of full beards, for example, end quote. It is with the Egyptian pursuit of eternal youth in mind that we can understand the country's affection for hair removal. Biblical society has beards. Egyptian society does not. I wrote about this once in an article in Commentary in which I discussed the Jewish penchant for beards. It is linked, I argue, to the fact that the Bible wishes to warn us not to ignore our aging, our mortality. I will add that to this day I'm a bit upset that I was not allowed to title this article, Hair Today, Gone Tomorrow. The biblical word for beard is zakan. An elderly person is a zakain. To shave our beards, as they did in Egypt, was done originally, at least in the ancient world, in order to deny our inevitable aging. As Leon Cass writes, while hair removal might seem to be an act of revealing, it is in fact a disguise. Quote, the cleanly shaven face and head hides all signs of growth, change. No shaggy outlines or blemishes mar the perfectly smooth look. What appears to be an unveiling is actually also a veiling of age and disorder. Shaving is a perfect emblem of the Egyptian penchant to deny change and to conquer decay by human effort, end quote. Egypt, then, in all respects, is an attempt not to turn back time, but at least to freeze time, to bring about Groundhog Day. Its culture reveals an Egypt obsessed with youth, with immortality. Leon Cass further writes that, quote, whether we look to hieroglyphics in which the mobile world is represented in static ideograms, or to Egyptian worship of the eternally circling, never-changing heavenly bodies, 
or to the defying of death through mummification, wherever one looks, we see in Egypt the rejection of change and the denial of death, end quote. Another way of saying this is that for Egypt, Groundhog Day is not a curse. It is an ambition. And thus, Egypt emerges as the opposite of Israel. For the biblical message is that it is only when we understand the finitude of our own time on earth that we truly become focused on our lives and even more importantly, on our transmission to the next generation. Of all the sentences that I have seen written about Groundhog Day, the best comes from the historian Richard Brookheiser, cited by Goldberg, who writes as follows, quote, The curse is lifted when Bill Murray blesses the day he has just lived, and his reward is that the day is taken from him. Loving life includes loving the fact that it goes, end quote. Egypt does not understand this, but Joseph does, and though, of course, he is guided by the divine, at the same time, Joseph's understanding of change in time is the key to his interpretation of these dreams. And he applies this insight to all that Pharaoh has told him. For here too, as with the prisoners, the images that Pharaoh has seen embody units of time. And the king's visions, he explains to Pharaoh, predict that after seven years of prosperity, famine will descend on Egypt, and Pharaoh must now prepare for the radical change that time will bring. It is with this in mind that we can suddenly understand how it is that only Joseph is able to understand the Egyptian dreams. For in Egypt, only an Israelite understands that time moves forward. I owe this extraordinary insight to Robert Sachs, who is cited by Cass in his book on Genesis. These are Sachs's words. The awareness of time is the crucial key, not only to this dream, but all three dreams. Apparently, the difference between him who can and him who cannot interpret the dreams depends to a large extent upon the interpreter's awareness of the importance of time. Cass adds, in his own expansion on Sachs's point, quote, the secret of interpreting or solving the code of Egyptian dreams here and with Pharaoh seems to be turning all numbers into units of time, a static and discrete multiplicity into a measured period of change. On the surface, the Egyptian dreams hide the passage of time and the fact of change. But Joseph puts time and change back into the picture, end quote. If there is one moment that truly captures the self-important sarcasm of Bill Murray's character before his own repentance in Groundhog Day, it is when Phil closes his initial report about the Groundhog's emergence, and he says, This is one time where television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel predicting the weather. Here, in our story, Joseph informs Pharaoh that indeed, the image of seven cows, rightly understood, are an image of time, and they are predicting the weather, that the agriculture of Egypt is not an eternally renewing cycle, but rather, time itself will bring about a radical change for Egypt and ultimately for Joseph's career. And in the end, the greatest change of all will take place not without, but within in Joseph's heart, and in the hearts of his brothers. For Judah, as we will soon see, will also change. He will go from villain to hero, and Joseph, the brother betrayed, will find within himself the astonishing capacity to forgive. The fact that time moves forward in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, along with Phil Connor's own self-transformation, highlights how the two go hand in hand. And we are about to witness, as we will see in tomorrow's talk, the transformation of Joseph's brother, 
one which has already been ongoing and is about to reach its fullest flowering. Decades after the release of the movie Groundhog Day, a musical version of the film premiered on Broadway. One man who came to see it was Bill Murray. Hilariously, after seeing it, he came the next day to experience, if you will, Groundhog Day again. But most poignantly, the New York Times reports that at one point during the performance, Murray was seen weeping. He was brought to tears, and he was asked why. Quote, The idea that Mr. Murray trailed off as he paused to collect his thoughts. The idea that we just have to try again. We just have to try again. It's such a beautiful, powerful idea. End quote. The cycle of hate and jealousy that has occupied not only the family of Jacob, but many biblical families, is about to come to an end. And it is Judah, a man who will change himself, who will illustrate how Groundhog Day is not our destiny. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.